Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of November 2019 and this is episode 137. On this week's programme, Professor Gary Sheffield, Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton and Honorary President of the Western Front Association, talks about a collection of papers he's recently edited titled In Hague's Shadow that has been published by Green Hill Books. This volume features private papers from the Dupree family that include unseen correspondence from Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig and Haig's nephew, Major General Hugo Dupree. I spoke to Gary from his office in Wolverhampton. Gary, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Okay, well, my my day job is I'm Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. Uh, I started my academic career in the War Studies Department at Sandhurst back in the mid-80s. I then went to King's College London uh, as uh, part of their Defence Studies Department located out at Shriven at the Joint Services Command and Staff College. I went from there after 20 years in military education into mainstream university life, first of all as Professor of War Studies at the University of Birmingham, and I moved to my, my current job in 2013. Uh, I've been a member of the Western Front Association since 1986. I was a, a vice president for about 12 years, and in the spring, I was uh, very privileged to be appointed as the, the new honorary president in succession to Peter Simpkins. I've been interested in military history really for as long as I can remember. I think my first, the first military book I can ever remember reading was probably the Lady Bird story of Nelson. But, and, and you know, I, I, played with toy soldiers, made airfix kits and all the rest of it. My interest in the First World War, actually, I can date very specifically. It was a time in, I suspect, 1974 or something like that, when I read Martin Middlebrook's First Day on the Somme, and it completely captivated me. It absolutely fascinated me. And I just wanted to know more about Kitchener's army and the Somme and the First World War. Fast forward to the early 80s, I was an undergraduate doing history at the University of Leeds. And one of the special subjects being offered by uh, Dr. Hugh Cecil was Britain and the First World War. And I took that, did my dissertation on it, decided I want to become an academic. And, you know, the obvious thing to do was to continue my studies of the First World War. So I've been fascinated by the First World War for a very long time indeed. So Gary, tell us about this new collection of papers that you have just um, edited and has just been published. I had a biography of Douglas Haig published in 2011 and a revised version came out in 2016. And as often happens, after a book appears, people come and tell you about papers that they're aware of which are relevant to that book, which you didn't know about when you're writing it. And it happened in this case. And I was introduced to Lady Glover, Janet Glover, who is the uh, the widow of uh, General Sir Jimmy Glover, who was a very senior officer uh, at the uh, at the end, the end of the twentieth and beginning of the of the, the current century. And we got extremely well. In fact, we 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 become very very good friends. And she showed me her collection of family papers. She was the great niece of Douglas Haig and the granddaughter of Hugo Dupree 
who was Douglas Haig's nephew. He's often described as his cousin. That's not actually true, but they're only nine years apart. And so actually their relationship was much more like cousins than a sort of uncle and nephew. And I looked at the papers and there was a small but very interesting collection of family papers. And I decided it would be be useful to to turn it into a book. And so there was a series of letters to and from Hugo Dupree and some from Douglas Haig. Now, Hugo Dupree's letters, they were uh, letters from, from the front. Uh, he wrote some, some wonderful letters to his wife, particularly about the Battle of Combray, and also 1918. Sadly, his letters for the earlier part of the war seem to have, have dis- disappeared. But also, there were some really interesting letters he exchanged in the late 20s and early 30s with some of his uh, former comrades, because he wrote two really quite important articles, one on Combray, which he had a, had a fairly big role in, 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 in planning as a chief of staff of four corps, and also about his time as a brigade commander at the very end of the war, at, at the battles of, of, of the Somme and, and, and the Battle of the Cell. And he had kept some of the letters that he had written to his former congr- uh, comrades, you know, at sort of general, uh, brigadier and battalion commander level, which actually he then in part based his work on. Now, that meant that by the end of last year, roughly you know, the, end, the end of 2018, I had a, I think a good but quite short manuscript based on these papers. And then in late October, I was giving one of many lectures I gave in 2018, uh, public lectures. This one was on Douglas Haig. And at the dinner afterwards, I sat next to Lady Rayner Haig, who was Haig's granddaughter. And she said to me, uh, have you been to see her relatives who lived up in the Scottish borders? They've got a collection of papers that you might find interesting. Well, uh, I hadn't, of course. And it took me until January to to go up there. But when I did, uh, and Peter and Andrea Dupree, the uh, the people who had these, these these papers, they treated me absolutely royally, allowed a complete stranger to come into in, in, into their house and gave me a free run of their papers. And as I emailed to my publisher the very first day I saw them, this is absolutely gold dust. There were a collection of, a small collection of letters from Hugo Dupree, but the main letters were a set from Hay, particularly to his favourite niece, Ruth Dupree, who was also Hugo Dupree's sister-in-law. Lots of other letters as well, and also a really interesting memoir written in the early 1930s by Ruth Dupree about her uncle Douglas, Douglas Haig. So actually incorporating that material, and I went to various other places and I got stuff from the from the public record office and some, some various other archives. It, in the end, we I, I thought it was, it, was, it, was, it was a better book, certainly a longer, more detailed book than we had initially been thinking of publishing. And I think it's a really interesting contribution to the um, to the materials available for the study of the British Army at that sort of level in the First World War. So both at extremely high command GHQ level, but also what a Corps Chief of Staff and later a Brigade Commander was doing, particularly 1917, 1918. Obviously, you've touched on the two uh, main protagonists who, who's, whose correspondence is in the book, which is Douglas Haig and his uncle Hugo Dupree. Um, starting with Douglas Haig, so what do, they, what, what do they tell us that's new and that might shape perceptions around a Douglas Haig as, as a person and also as a general? There's not much in it about Haig's generalship and high command. It's much more about Haig as a man. And I, I think that actually is, is the importance of this material, because much of the stuff that Haig wrote, of course, was formal. 
it was for the record. Even his diary, of course, is in many ways his record of events. Portions of his diary are, are being shown to people in high places at home, including the king. And so there's a certain extent to which Haig is deliberately putting forward the point of view that he wants to be recorded for, for posterity. Now, his letters to his family are not like that. They're much more about him, if you like, relaxing, some talking about sort of the more trivial things that have, that have happened to him, things that, that have interested him. And I think they shed some light on how his personal morale uh, was supported during the war. Now, of course, there's the, the demands of keeping up the morale of the soldier in the frontline trench and, and the general... Uh, back at headquarters are radically diff different, but they still need, they're still important. And for a long time, it's been clear that Haig's family, as in his, his wife and young children, were really important in keeping up his personal morale. Now I think we can see that it, actually his wider family was also important. Two, two things I've mentioned about this. First of all, is that what came across from me, which actually did surprise me, is Haig's Scottishness. Now, of course, Haig was indeed a Scot, but he doesn't really parade that very much uh, in the material that we've, we've had up to this point. But in these letters to, to Ruth, for example, he sort of lapses into the Scottish vernacular. He's doing it very deliberately. He puts Scots phrases um, in inverted commas. But it, you almost get the impression that he's relaxing, sort of equivalent of kicking his shoes off. You know, no, I, I can actually sort of, you know, be myself. And he gets very nostalgic. So, for example, he talks about his, he reminisces about, about, about his childhood. Ruth is, is very good at sort of, sort of sending food parcels. So, so Finn and Haddocks and uh, Berwick Cockles. I've no idea what Berwick Cockles were or possibly still are. They're a sort of mint, mint sweet that Douglas Haig, you know, uh, recalls going to spend his pocket money on when he was a child. And every now and again, you do get a, a glimpse or at least a hint at the pressure he's under. At one stage, I think it's um, in September 1916, so, you know, in the middle of the Somme, he writes to Ruth to apologise for the fact that he hasn't written recently or, or, or quite a brief letter or something like that. But he says something like, I've been very busy and my days have been full of anxiety. Now, he's a man who doesn't usually let the mask of command slip. That occasion he does. It just gives a hint at the pressure he's, he's under. The memoir, I think, is, again, very interesting. Now, it is not an objective piece of work because Ruth quite clearly uh, adored her uncle and actually hero-worshipped him. But what I think it does bring across uh, is a sense of how the Haig family believed that Haig, from a very young age, was going places. You know, he, he, was, he was, I believe, the youngest of, I think it's 11 children, children of which, which nine survived, I think that's the numbers anyway. And yet he is the man who's quite clearly being seen to to, to be making waves in the army. It also, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, captures quite a number of facets of, of his personality, not all of, of which are actually particularly complimentary. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a warts and all approach. So one thing which I found uh, <clears throat> particularly interesting and actually amusing is that Ruth quotes General Sir James Grierson, Jimmy Grierson, a fellow Scot. He's the one, of course, who died of a heart attack on his way to the front in 1914, as then replaced as commander of Second Corps by Horace Smith, Smith Dorian. And uh, if, I, if I can just, just, just quote from, from, from the letter, Grierson comments on, on Haig's particular 
brand of Church of Scotland Christianity. And, and Grierson said, and I, and I apologise in advance, I really can't do the accent. The sort of thing, of thing he cares for is more like this. Oh Lord, come doon and help us. Come doon and help us in our need. And if you dinner, come doon and help us. You hear more about it. So, in other words, you know, sort of, you know, basically, sort of, you know, parodying uh, Haig's, you know, uh, Scottish Lowland Presbyterian approach to religion. So, there's, there's a wealth of sort of minor detail in, in 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 Ruth's memoir. I just wish I'd had access to it when I was writing my biography, because I think it would have produced a a more rounded figure of of Douglas Haig as a person, personality, as an individual. I've actually reproduced the entire memoir. In in the book and so i think anybody else who writes about hagen future there i think will be um, i think they'll be grateful to to ruth having written written this memoir right turning to hugo dupree who's hague's nephew what do his letters tell about um tell us about him as an individual and a military leader okay well but hugo dupree isn't terribly well known I must admit that after I met uh, Janet Glover for the first time and looked at his papers, it sort of triggered something in the back of my mind. But it wasn't until I got home and did some reading, re- reading I realised exactly who, who he was. He is most famous for refusing to attack in August 1918 under unfavourable circumstances because he thought his, his men were going to be killed for, for no good reason. Probably best if we come back and talk, talk about that later on. But when I dug into his career, it actually was quite distinguished. He was a gunner. He served in the in, in, in the Boer War. He's, he had some service on the northwest frontier of, of India. And he, like his uncle, Douglas, he went the staff route before the First World War. So he went to staff college. He, in fact, was, he, he, he served under Haig at, at the war office. And in fact, when the war began, he was one of the directing staff at Quetta, the uh, Indian Army Staff College in in India, what's now actually in Pakistan. He came across with the Indian Corps to France at the end of 1914 and had a series of staff jobs. He obviously was seen as a safe pair of hands. In 1915, he was put in as a staff officer to uh, one of the Canadian divisions, so obviously you know a regular officer there to sort of provide some sort of you know, almost mentoring for a group of really uh, fairly green and untrained soldiers. And at the beginning of 1916, he was transferred across as chief of staff to Fourth Corps, and he was there from really from early 1916 through to early 1918. And as part of that, he was at least in part responsible for planning Combray. He always thought of Combray as being his battle. He was then, at very short notice, parachuted in to replace the commander of a brigade in the Royal Naval Division, who had been gassed a few days previously, commanded this brigade all the way through the uh, the March retreat pretty successfully, and went on to then be sacked as a result of his uh, refusal to attack in, in, in August 1918. He was reinstated and ended up as a commander uh, of a brigade in 38th Welsh Division, through which he saw out the war. After the war, and I think this is a measure of how well he was regarded, he was sent off to, to command a brigade in India. Now, of course, at the end of the war, most people who had big promotions, of course, as, as he had, were reduced in rank quite considerably and actually ended up commanding at a lower, a level much lower than they'd ended up in 1918. 
team. That doesn't happen to Hugo Dupree. He's a substantive colonel in the army. He's sent off to command a brigade in India. After that, he commands a territorial division and he ends his career as commandant of the Royal Military Academy, Woolwich, the shop where he had been as a cadet, where sappers and, and, and gun, gunners were, were trained. So actually, it's, a, it's not a stellar military career. But nonetheless, it's a quite a distinguished one. And what we get to know about Hugo Dupree as an individual is he's, he, he's, he's a serious man. Uh, he takes soldiering and then he takes military history very seriously. He's a loving family man. He has a, a, a wonderful relationship with his wife, Dione, who's known as Di within the family. I think he's, he's quite can be quite, quite, quite strict and quite, quite fierce. But he's a man who, who does make friends and men um, who, who write about him, his, his colleagues, are of very very affectionate. He also has a close relationship with Douglas Haig. They are, as I said, more like cousins than uncle nephew. Uh, Hugo, for example, is Haig's best man at Haig's marriage to Lady Dorothy, Doris, in 1905. Uh, and of course, he becomes one of three trustees of Haig's estate after Haig dies in 1928. So there's actually a close and affectionate relationship between Hugo and and Douglas. Gary, I wonder whether you could tell us about uh, Dupree's removal from command that you alluded to earlier. Okay, yeah. Now, this happens on uh, Saturday 24th of August 1918, which is undoubtedly the most traumatic day of Hugo Dupree's professional career. Now, the situation is that Third Army uh, is in the second phase of its attack, which had begun on the 21st of August. And uh, a week and a half before that, of course, Fourth Army and the French had kicked off the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August. So the Germans are now on the retreat. And this is this is Third Army's opportunity to join in the battle. And uh, 63rd Division, the Royal Navy Division, is ordered up. And Dupree and the other brigade commanders are given three and a half hours warning that they're going to go into attack at 7.30 p.m. But by but half an hour, 15 minutes before, it's very clear that for all sorts of reasons, the troops are not in position. The ground has not been wrecked. Uh, Dupree actually has gone forward with his senior battalion commanders, looked over the ground. Tank support hasn't come up as expected. There's been quite a lot of German air activity early in the day, which has slowed up the, the Brits getting, getting to the front. And all of this, he looks around and basically says, I don't like this. I do not think that my men are ready to attack. I th in effect, he decides he's not going to throw his men's life away on what he sees as a futile attack. So therefore, as the senior officer present, he took the difficult and I think morally courageous decision to cancel the attack. He's then summoned to see the divisional commander, Major General Laurie, at 10.30 that, that, that evening, and he's summarily sacked from command of his brigade, and he's, he's sent, sent, sent away. Now, ever since, pretty well then, this has been a massively controversial incident. I should say that Dupree appeals to the corps commander. There's a board of inquiry and Dupree is reinstated, although he's not given back his old brigade. He's sent off to, to a fresh one. And Laurie, the divisional commander, is actually sacked. There has been some suspicion that this is because he's Haig's nephew. I must say, I have found absolutely no evidence of this whatsoever. Now, clearly at some stage, Haig would have got to know about this, but Haig's track record is not one of actually sort of getting involved in, in Hugo's career. In fact, on, on several occasions, Haig does things 
which actually, you know, didn't exactly help Hugo's career along. There's one example in May 1916, which we might want to talk about later. So actually, I, so I don't think there's any evidence at all that Haig in, in, in intervened. Now, Edmonds, the official historian, in a, in a very sort of Edmonds-ish sort of way, simply says what, what, what happened. In a footnote, he points out what had happened to the, the two protagonists. And, you know, the fact he mentions that Dupree is reappointed and Laurie is sacked, suggests that Edmonds thinks the right decision was, was reached. And more recently, historians have looked at this as well. I mean, and jo uh, Jonathan Boff, in his uh, excellent book on, uh, on Third Army and its enemies in 1918, has actually dug into this and suggested that perhaps that Laurie overreacted to a subordinate legitimately exercising uh, his, his initiative. And one of the things which I found in, 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 in um, Dupree's papers suggests that this is probably right, because Dupree claims that at the at the command conference held before the battle, I think on, on the previous day, he said, there's I'm quoting here, that if the attack could not be got ready, it would be postponed to the next day. And he had issued an order that brigadiers were not to squander their men's lives. And uh, Jonathan Barth and various other historians have put all sorts of other ideas forward that the fact that there was uh, a struggle between the corps commander and the divisional commander. It could be that Hugo Dupree really just becomes collateral damage because of a wider struggle going on. Now, not everybody approved of this. If you read what New Zealanders have to say, the New Zealanders actually were on their flank, and so they were affected by the 189 Brigade not, not going forward. And even New Zealand historians to the present day, they're, they're very critical. I suspect it you know, depends on which side of the, uh, of, of the, or which part of the line you're, you're, you're looking at. It does strike me that is, this is out of character for Dupree to do something which threw spanner, a spanner in, in the works like this to such a great extent. He's already, you know, a pretty experienced brigade commander albeit this is this is first offensive action he's brought the, his brigade through the march retreat i think that he looked at what was going on and decided this isn't going to work i'm not going to waste my my men's lives and there's a wonderful letter which he kept not surprisingly from one of his former junior officers which actually he sent in 1933 and he basically writes to dupree he invites him to a reunion and says you well to quote directly you saved our lives and the lives of lots of our men but for your sound action Action, we would not be able to talk together. Everyone has a good word for you. So the men under his command had no doubt that Dupree made the right decision. Just taking you up on your, your lead there about the incident in 1916 when Haig um, hindered Dupree's career. I wonder whether you could just um, enlighten us on that, because I am intrigued. Yeah, well, of course, he didn't do this consciously. But what happened in May 1916, when, when Hugo Dupree is the chief of staff of 4th Corps, and his corps commander is Henry Wilson. Now, there's a very, actually quite famous incident whereby Wilson, who is a field commander, I think, for the for, maybe for the first time in his career, certainly this this sort of level, having had lots of staff jobs, he's commanding 4th Corps, which is holding, which is at the time, a pretty quiet sector of the front near Vimy Ridge. The Germans put in an attack and they capture a good deal of ground. And for all sorts of reasons, 4th Corps does not counterattack. And so the, the, the trenches remain in German hands. Now, slightly unfairly in my view, Wilson, who is acting as First Army commander because General Munro is off on leave, really gets 
it in the neck from Hay, who I think uses this as an opportunity. Uh, he, he finally has got a stick to, to, to beat his, his, his rival with. The fact that Hugo, his nephew and close friend, is Haig's, sorry, is, 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 is Wilson's chief of staff, uh, does not prevent Haig from giving Fourth Corps a bit of a kicking. And... Um, it seems that at one point that actually that Wilson's career is in the balance and he attains it, attains it, it his post. But nonetheless, the fact this also reflects poorly on Hugo Dupree's role as chief of staff of Fourth Corps. Well, either it doesn't occur to Haig, I suspect it probably did, or he didn't let, let it affect his judgment. He thought he needed to haul a particular army commander over the over, over the coals. There's a piece I quoted in um, in my Haig bio, and of course, a few years before that, I edited Haig's diaries with uh, with, with with John Ball, in which uh, at the very end of of 1915, just after Haig had become commander-in-chief, he wrote in his diary, and this is a memo to himself, but also, of course, this diary is seen by other influential people, that he made it clear that, and again to quote, I had no friends when it came to military promotion, and I would not tolerate a job being done. And at this time, of course, friends and job had very, very specific uh, meanings in the language of the army at that time. In other words, Haig was going to be a disinterested viewer when it came to promotion, to appointments themselves, and so forth, he would not allow his personal views, his personal relationships to get in the way. Now, Haig has a reputation for sticking too long to uh, people who, who don't uh, do so well in, in jobs. And there is some truth in that. But I think Haig, by his own lights, stuck to this principle he set himself. The people he supported in office, he thought were the right people to be there. Personal favouritism did not come into it. He might be wrong about someone's capacity and character, but nonetheless, he sincerely believed that they were the right man for the right job, whether that was true or not in reality. Now, also, your book touches on papers um, relating to Pree's life um, after the First World War. And in 1928, he was appointed as one of the trustees of Haig's estate. Can you tell me about his role here? Yeah, this actually is, uh, I mean, I say I found very interesting, but a very, quite, a, a very sad story. So Haig dies uh, very early in, in 1928, unexpectedly dies of a heart attack. And suddenly... The idea of producing an authorised biography, which you know, undoubtedly would have been produced at some point in the future, comes very much to the fore. Now, this is not simply a matter of the family getting a, uh, someone in to, to, to write a biography. This is something which is regarded as being important and indeed politically sensitive at the highest levels of the country. The king, George V, takes a personal interest in this biography. The reason being, of course, because he is aware, as indeed are a number of people at the, sort of the, the top of the establishment, of the of, of the very candid and sort of critical nature of, of Hague stories, particularly about the French. And of course, in the late 20s, early 30s, relations between Britain and France are not all they should be, but there's a clear understanding that France might be an ally at some point in the future. So, so basically... You can't simply reproduce everything that's in, 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 in his diaries. Bear in mind, of course, that Wilson's diaries had been published, large chunks been published in Calwell's biography of, of Wilson just a few years before that, which caused absolute scandal because, because Wilson, of course, is simply very forthright and being very prejudiced in what, what, what he writes. It's clear that you've got to have the right 
inverted commas person to write this book, who someone must be uh, approved of by, by the establishment, who, who won't, won't rock, rock the boat. The problem with this is that Haig's widow, uh, Doris, Lady Dorothy Haig, proves to be a loose cannon. She comes across as being a, a really very, I think, quite sad figure. She, I think she never really recovers from her husband's sudden death. I think, you know, we, I think it's probably fair to say she suffered what they then would have called a, a nervous breakdown. Anyway, cut a long story short, two things happen. First of all, there's a whole series of candidates for writing Haig's biography who are approached, think about it, and then they decline. And at least some cases, the reason that they decline is because they don't fancy working with Lady Haig, uh, a literary widow, as it were, looking over their shoulder. John Buchan, uh, you know, you know, one of the most prominent writers in Britain at the time, both as a, as a novelist and also as a, as, as a historian, uh, thoroughly approved of by the king. He, he, he doesn't give a reason why he suddenly changes his mind, but uh, later on, um, it sort of comes out in, in, in somebody else's letter that, that basically uh, Lady Haig has been rude to him. And so eventually, and they go through all sorts of candidates, including uh, George Macaulay Trevelyan. They even contemplate Winston Churchill at one stage. Alfred Duff Cooper, uh, who is a, a serving minister at the time, later goes on to become Secretary of State for War and uh, a prominent anti-appeaser, is appointed as the biographer. So that's the first thing. The problem with that, of course, is that once Duff Cooper is in place and all three of the trustees, that is uh, Dupree, Lady Haig and Bertie Fisher, who's had served in, in the 17th Lancers with Haig and is, is, is a major general by, by this time, all three sign off on Duff Cooper and uh, Lady Haig very rapidly changes her mind that she doesn't think he's an appropriate person. She puts obstacles in his way and the um, the material I've, I've put in the book is actually very interesting about the way that the, the process of, of, of writing a biography. Far worse than that, she resurrects an idea which she has in the late 20s of writing her own biography of Haig. This causes all sorts of problems. And the bottom line is that the, the, uh, the USP, as we'd say today, the unique selling point of the official biography is that it has access, it has access to, to Haig's diaries. Lady Haig wants to use Haig's diaries. And if you do that, it's simply going to cut the throat of the other book. And of course, the sad thing is that both Dupree and, 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 and Bertie Fisher and Lady Haig are basically seeking the same thing. They're seeking to get as much money as they possibly can to secure the future of Douglas and Doris's children. Very, very long and involved and, and sad story, which in the end ends up in the courts, with the courts ruling against Lady Haig. She's not allowed to produce her biography until the until Duff Cooper's biography comes out. And and so Duff, Duff, Duff Cooper's biography does actually get a free, a free run. And then Lady Haig produces actually a very different version of her biography with most of the diaries cut out. That appears, I think, in 1937 or 38. Anyway, uh, a couple of years after the publication of Duff Cooper's biography anyway. Now, the ironic thing is that actually Duff Cooper's biography is, it's uh, its obviously official, it's discreet, it's a little bit dull. And, and Lady Haig's book, the people who read it at the time say, actually, this is a much more, much better read. It's not scholarly or anything like that, but it actually gets, uh, it's much more interesting for the, for, for the ordinary reader. In the end, Duff Cooper's biography doesn't sell that well. It doesn't help it get some terrible reviews from Basil Little Hart. And maybe if Lady Haig's biography had come out instead, it would have sparked more interest in Haig at the very point at which 
his reputation was coming under attack. Of course, we're now into the the era of the great war books boom and the sort of the upsurge of disillusioned thinking and disillusioned writing. So the other story which was really interesting that emerges in, in his sort of post-First World War uh, correspondence was his relationship with his son John. I wonder whether you could tell us about that. John Dupree is Hugo Dupree's youngest son. His middle name is Bouron because he's born in the middle of the Battle of Cambrai and his middle name is taken from Boulogne Wood, Boulogne Ridge. So, so from beginning of his life, John Dupree is marked by his father's legacy of the First World War. Well, John wants to become a regular officer. He goes to Sandhurst. He's very, very, he's a very, very good sportsman and much liked. And there's glowing reports from him. And there's some interesting papers, uh, letters to his father, because his father is desperately pulling strings behind the scenes because he wants John to go into the Rifle Brigade, which, of course, is a, a very smart socially prestigious regiment. John, however, wants to go into Seaforth Highlanders because that's where his friends are going. In the end, John prevails. These little things which can change the shape of an individual's life. Because he joins the, the Seaforths, he's deployed with the 2nd Battalion to France in 1939. The 2nd Battalion is sent to the 51st Highland Division, so a regular battalion sent to stiffen uh, a territorial division. And that means that John is taken prisoner at saint valery en co with the rest of 51st Highland Division. He's taken prisoner, but he is one of those of that minority of British officers who's desperate to escape. He pals up with a fellow officer, in fact, the son of the Viceroy of India, the, the Marquis of Linlithgow, and they succeed in escaping, getting as far as, uh, as a port, but they're captured while trying to get a boat to, to take them across to England. And John ends up at a prison camp uh, in Germany, Warburg. In August 1942, there's the plan to carry out what becomes known as the Warburg wire job, in which prisoners fuse the lights and get over the wire using ladders. And simultaneously, they are digging a tunnel, and John is involved in digging the tunnel. Tragically, he's killed in the tunnel because there is a, an electric uh, wire which is strung, rigged up to provide light. It's a live wire and somehow it touches his bare back. He's probably killed instantly. But anyway, the prisoners abandon the tunnel, get the Germans in. The German guards help to dig him out, but he's he's dead before they get him out of the tunnel, effectively. And this is particularly tragic because John married his fiancée, uh, Veronica Snadden, a young Scots lady, the, the daughter of an MP, just a few weeks after the outbreak of the war. And... He then goes to France, and so they have this long-distance relationship by letter. They're clearly very much in love. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, a not untypical wartime marriage, of which it, the, the pace is forced because of, of a soldier being sent overseas. And we have some, some marvellous letters that Veronica wrote to her father-in-law, to Hugo, passing on stories that John himself has told her about what's going on at in, in, in the prison camp. Because he, uh, as a prisoner, he only gets so many, only allows him to write so many letters, he tends to write to his wife, understandably, rather than his father. And from that, and from a letter that's written by a fellow prisoner after his death, and from various other bits and pieces that I've came across, we're able to put together 
the story of the death of John Dupree. So John, who I mentioned earlier, is marked by the First World War. His middle name is Boulon from, from the Battle of Cambrai. War continues. It, 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 it has its grip on the, on the Dupree family into another generation. And I must say, John Dupree's story is, is a very sad one. Hugo dies uh, in, in, ni- in ni- 1943 in, in his 70s. But in the following year, in 1944, some members of the Dupree and Haig families are living together in Beech Hill House, which is up in the Scottish borders. And in October 1944, there's a terrible tragedy when uh, an aircraft, uh, a mosquito from a nearby base, explodes in midair for no apparent reason, and the debris crashes into the house, and six people are killed as a result, including Ruth Dupree, Haig's favourite niece. And so, even late in 1944, miles away from the fighting, the Dupree family are once again marked by tragedy brought about by war. The Dupree family were remarkably unlucky in the two world wars. And Go, why do you think these papers that have been published are important? I think because, well, two, two things. Uh, first of all, it brings, if you like, light and shade to one of the most famous individuals to emerge from the First World War. Douglas Haig. As I said, we're not going to learn a lot about strategy or tactics or his methods of command, but actually I think it, he emerges a more rounded person after reading his letters. In particular, I think it, it, it flags up his Scottishness and the importance of his wider family to him and sort of maintaining his morale. And I guess the other reason is that uh, Hugo Dupree, who is you know, pretty well unknown except for specialist military historians, emerges, as, as the title of the, of the book uh, gives it, uh, from Haig's shadow as, as a, a player in his own right, as, a, as an actor in, 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 in his own right, both as an actor in Haig's story, but also as, um, you know, a not insignificant military commander and staff officer. To be honest, we, we, we have far too little information on people at that sort of high level start. In, in, to be honest, we have far too little information on people in high-level staff jobs or as brigade commanders. And I think that Hugo Dupree's paper does, you know, put a brick in the overall wall that we're all building uh, of our knowledge of the First World War. Finally, Christmas is coming, and this is obviously an ideal gift. Where could people get In Hague's Shadow from? OK, well, the book In Hague's Shadow is published by Greenhill Books. And, of course, you can get it from all good bookshops and indeed from online booksellers. Gary, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>